Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Yeah, I'm doing okay. It is right now as I'm recording this intro bit, the day before Thanksgiving, and it's a little bit weird because, like a lot of people, this is the first one that I'm not going to be spending with my family, which is fine. I'm baking some pies today and I'm going to drop them off on the doorsteps of my brother and mom's houses, like some confused teen who doesn't understand the concept of pranks. So that'll be fun. But it is weird to not have the usual traditions associated with this holiday. So what I did the other night is attempted to start a new tradition for myself, which is watching some Thanksgiving-related movies. The thing is, there's not really a ton of those. And I think that's largely for pragmatic reasons. You've just got a shorter window. I feel like after the Halloween movies have stopped coming out, then people want to start pumping out the Christmas movies because those are two of the biggest movie-related holidays. And I think most studios just don't see the impetus to try to squeeze in a Thanksgiving movie between the two. But there are a few of them out there. Which is why, the other night, I watched Blood Rage, a Thanksgiving-centric slasher film. And it's a movie that I would give a qualified recommendation to for anybody who is maybe feeling a little bit weird about Thanksgiving this year. The reason it's a qualified recommendation is because A, I understand that slasher movies are not for everybody, and it does have all of the tropes that you would associate with them. And two, because it is very, very bad. But I think it's a good film to watch this time of year because it reminds us that every family has its flaws and its drawbacks. Maybe you've got a complicated relationship with your parents. Maybe you've got a racist uncle. Maybe when you were 11 years old, you framed your brother for murder and he's been institutionalized ever since. And now that he's escaped from the institution, you go on a killing spree and try to frame him for those murders. I'm just saying it's a weird time of year for a lot of people. Now, I know what you're thinking. You've got questions about this movie. You want to know, do they try to make the phrase, that's not cranberry sauce, a thing? Yes. Yes, they do. They try very hard, and it never really works. And probably your other big question is, does a young Ted Raimi have an inexplicable cameo as a guy who is illicitly selling condoms in the bathroom of a drive-in theater during the opening credits? I'm just gonna let you find that one out on your own. In summation, I give Blood Rage 13 thumbs up out of a possible 21. Now let's talk about a comic book, shall we? Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Robert McCarthy. Slapping Bruce Banner with a metal fist? Maybe T'Challa ain't such a genius. Synopsis. Thanks, Robert. Defenders, number 86. August, 1980. The Left Hand of Silence. Written by Ed Hannigan, drawed by Don Perlin, inked by Pablo Marcos, lettered by Michael Higgins, 
colored by Bob Sharon, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie. Hellcat. Doctor Strange. The Incredible Hulk. Nighthawk. Black Panther. Mr. Fantastic. And The Invisible Woman. Previously in The Defenders. The Hulk, Doctor Strange, and Namor left Earth for a bit to deal with some ridiculous backward spells objectivist nonsense and fight an anonymous underpants monster. While they were gone, the remaining Defenders had nonsense of their own to deal with. A team of lawyers informed Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, that he was suspected of committing gross financial malfeasance, and until the investigation was concluded, he was banned from putting on his fancy bird suit and punching crime. Hooray! Hellcat and Valkyrie headed west to Las Vegas, where they provided an extremely unsatisfying conclusion to the Omega the Unknown series. On their way home, they ran afoul of Mandrill, an incredibly problematic villain whose origin and power set were chock-full of racist and misogynist tropes. Mandrill was an anthropomorphic baboon with the power to control women with his pheromones. The perfidious primates sought to manipulate Val and Patsy and use them to conquer the world. With the help of the Wasp and a court-order-defying Kyle, our heroes managed to thwart the sinister simian's supervillainous schemes, but the Mandrill managed to escape to creep me out another day. When they returned home, the heroes popped in on Steve's Sanctum Sanctimonious and found that the supercilious sorcerer's subset of defenders had triumphed over the underpants monster. Hooray! Patsy took charge of the reunited non-team and officially asked Clea to join the roster. The long-suffering sorceress readily accepted. Hooray! In the following days, the gang uncovered evidence that the mandrel was connected with the distribution of high-tech smuggled Wakandan technology. Patsy contacted Wakanda's superpowered sovereign, King T'Challa, aka the Black Panther, and shared her information with him. Black Panther, who during a recent run-in with fellow headstrong head of state Namor had narrowly averted starting World War III by the slimmest of margins, was understandably alarmed that his fictional nation's nonsense technology had fallen into the hands of ne'er-do-wells, and agreed to join forces with the defenders to apprehend their ape-like adversary. Concerned that the crime-fighting king and his companions might curtail his illicit activities, Mandrill attempted to assassinate the Black Panther by trapping him and Hellcat on an airplane rigged with explosives. Oh no! Fortunately, Doctor Strange was able to mystically upload a YouTube video about how to defuse bombs directly into Patsy's brain. The duo of do-gooders escaped the death trap and resolved that they and the rest of the defenders would track down the stolen tech and bring Mandrill to justice. Gad Zooks! How will the Mystic Maiden Clea celebrate her new status as a full-fledged defender? What role do Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman play in this issue? And just what kind of stolen Wakandan superweapon is causing all this kerfuffle in the first place? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, by not appearing in the next three issues... They show up after all the fighting is done and tell everyone to go home. And a noise-canceling fidget spinner. It is, it's a quiet early morning in New York. The sun has just risen over the city's skyline, and Valkyrie is taking her flying horse Aragorn out for a ride. Black Panther gave her a fancy widget that can hone in on whether any Wakandan doodads are being used in the area, but so far it hasn't been pinging. As she and her pegasus soar over the still-slumbering metropolis, Val thinks to herself, It's a bummer that I haven't been able to find any of the contraband gizmos yet, but nice day for it. 
Since I've got some extra time, maybe I'll spend a couple of pages staring off into the middle distance and having a long internal monologue where I review elements of my backstory and remind readers that I am perpetually in the throes of a minor existential crisis. So, she does that. Nearby, in a fancy penthouse apartment, billionaire do well bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond is having a meeting with his lawyer. It's not going great. The lawyer is like, So, I worked on this case all night, and I think if we plea bargain, I can get the government to drop some of the charges against you. Neat, huh? Kyle is like, Plea bargain? No fucking way. I've never done anything illegal in my life. I mean, except those years I was a supervillain burglar bent on world domination. And the time I inadvertently authorized my company to funnel their money into a snake-themed arsonist hate group. And last week when I violated that court order by putting my bird suit on and punching bad guys. But other than those times, and a bunch of other times, I've never done anything illegal in my life! Kyle's self-righteous tantrum is interrupted by the arrival of some unexpected guests. Hellcat and the Black Panther pop in to see if Kyle can use his business contacts to help them track down the stolen tech. The affluent avian aficionado asks exactly what it is that they're looking for, and Panther whips out what looks like a super fancy fidget spinner and is like, This doohickey is a sound absorber. As its name would imply, it absorbs sound. He turns it on and Kyle and his lawyer yell and sing and break stuff, but there isn't any noise. Kyle's impressed. T'Challa's like, Not only that, but it converts the sound it absorbs into energy. If this technology gets out, it would put oil and coal companies out of business. When Nighthawk hears that, he's like, Not on my watch, it won't. As soon as I'm done using this confidential information to my advantage by making some stock market trades, I'm going to call up some of the business contacts I've cultivated who deal in stolen goods and see if they can find this device of yours. Then, it's back to complaining to my lawyer about how I can't understand why anyone would think I would engage in illegal business practices. Fucking Kyle. Meanwhile, across town in the embassy of an unnamed Soviet country, a shady business deal which will kick off an unlikely chain of events is about to go down. The deputy ambassador of the anonymous nation in question is a pompous jerk who looks a lot like Sidney Greenstreet from the Maltese Falcon. He's arranged to meet a creepy CIA agent who looks like Peter Lorre. The Sydney Greenstreet-looking dude has gotten his hands on one of these sound-absorbing thingies and has agreed to sell it to the Peter Lorre-looking dude for $100,000. Pete is skeptical and asks Sid why he wants to sell it to a Western country and not keep it for the good old USSR. Sid is like, Oh, they're getting one too. I just want to keep the balance of power so that I can keep exploiting the Cold War for my own benefit. Pete thinks that's a pretty good plan. He asks for a demonstration of how the device works, so Sid riles up a cute little puppy that he has sitting on his desk. At first, the dog is barking super loud, like there are children outside playing basketball while someone was trying to record a podcast. Yeah, that's right, Finley. I'm calling you out on your shit. I know you're upset that those kids aren't concentrating on the fundamentals, but give it a rest. Anyway, Sid flips a switch, and suddenly, the dog's barking makes no sound whatsoever. Must be nice. Pete is impressed. Sid rewards his noisy dog by letting the little guy chug some wine right from the bottle. Don't get any ideas, Finley. 
you'll use a glass just like everyone else in this household. Peter Lorry presents a briefcase full of money to Sidney Greenstreet. But while Sid is busy counting it, Pete turns on the noise canceller, pulls out a gun, silently shoots the distracted diplomat, and leaves with both the device and the money. Damn. And normally Peter Lorry's characters are so trustworthy. Peter Lorry's deadly double-dealing doppelganger rushes out into the street, congratulating himself on what a good sneaky murderer he is. The only problem is, he forgot to turn the device off. Consequently, he hears neither the approaching bus nor the horn the driver honks when he realizes it is too late to avoid a collision with the shady-looking character who has just run out into traffic. The Peter Lorry-looking CIA agent dies on impact, and the sound absorber goes flying from his hand turning itself off as it hits the ground. In the chaos that results from the accident, it goes unnoticed that a down-on-his-luck cab driver picks up the strange-looking device and takes it home with him. Patsy and Black Panther leap down from a nearby rooftop. The kitty-cat cosplaying crime fighters had been tracking the device ever since the Cindy Greenstreet-looking dude had first activated it, and were seconds away from finding it when it turned itself off. Bummer. Back at Stephen Strange's Sanctum Sanctimonious, Bruce Banner is feeling depressed. He's tired of turning into the Hulk all the time. Valkyrie tries to get the perturbed purple pants enthusiast to stop being such a grumpus. She tries to convince him to go to a movie with her or something, but Bruce is like, No way! What if I get stressed out and turn into a rampaging monster leaving a trail of death and destruction in my wake? Val is like, Well, okay, but what if you don't? Then you would have missed out on seeing a movie. Bruce is unconvinced, but Steve, who had been listening in from the other room, is like, Look, Bruce, yes, by going outside you risk harming or potentially killing the people you interact with, but aren't you tired of staying inside and not seeing people? Maybe if you just ignore the danger you're putting other people in and act like everything's normal and do whatever you feel like doing, things will work out fine. Damn it, America! I mean, Steve. Bruce is swayed by Steve's argument and decides to go see a movie with Val. Damn it, Bruce and Val. There is no such thing as herd immunity to the Hulk. As our heroes check the movie listing so they can go selfishly endanger their fellow citizens with their irresponsible bullshit, a continent away in a lavish Central American villa, a half-naked mandrill lounges around a pool with a group of bikini-clad ladies he is no doubt exercising his mind-control powers over, and creeps me the fuck out. The baboon-faced blowhard is like, Sucks that the ambassador guy who looks like Sidney Greenstreet is dead, cause he was working for me. Between that and the Black Panther cracking down on smuggling, it's been a bummer of a week. Oh well, at least I still have my bullshit powers of weaponized misogyny and my racially problematic origin. Yes, thank goodness for that. Speaking of racism... Let's get back to that cab driver who picked up the sound absorber at the scene of the accident. Turns out, he's racist. Bummer. As he walks up the stairs to his apartment, the cabbie gets increasingly frustrated at his Spanish-speaking neighbors as they have discussions around him. When their conversations and television watching bleeds through the paper-thin walls of his shitty apartment, the cab driver bangs on the wall and shouts a string of expletives at them. He laments their foreign talk and wishes that they would, quote, Go back where they came from, unquote. Shitty. Then, for no apparent reason, the racist cabbie takes out the gizmo he picked up earlier that afternoon and starts poking at it. Instantly, 
all sound ceases within the confines of the apartment. Delighted, the racist cabbie falls into a deep sleep. The only problem is, he was so relaxed from the unexpected silence that he fell asleep with a lit cigarette in his hand. Within minutes, his mattress catches on fire, and the unlucky cabbie finds himself unwittingly providing the answer to Midnight Oil's musical question, how can we sleep when our beds are burning? Unfortunately, the answer turns out to be all too soundly. The cabbie wakes up engulfed in flames. He stumbles to the hallway and tries to call for help, but as he's still carrying the sound-absorbing thingamabob, no sound issues from his lips. By the time he remembers to turn off the machine, it's too late. A final scream of anguish escapes his lips as the racist cabbie burns to death. The strange Wakandan mechanism rolls from his lifeless fingers and tumbles down the stairs, where it is picked up by a curious toddler named Luis, who is fleeing the apartment with his mother. More on them later. Luckily for the majority of the tenants of the building, T'Challa and Patsy had been tracking the device ever since the now-deceased cabbie turned it on earlier. They were once again seconds away from honing in on it, when it was turned off, so they arrived at the scene of the fire just in time to rescue most of the building's residents from the flames. Once the civilians are safe, the feline firefighter starts sifting through the rubble, searching for the missing device, unaware that the widget in question is on its way to the Bronx apartment of Luis's grandmother. When Luis and his frazzled mother arrive at their destination, Luis starts banging his new toy on the wall and yelling, because he's a toddler. But his mom has had enough. She snatches the toy from his hands and yells at him to be quiet. Or at least that's what she tries to do. But as she grabs the gizmo, she manages to activate it and is delighted to find herself and her young son enveloped by a cone of silence. Experiencing peace and quiet for the first time in as long as she can remember, the woman does some soul-searching, intermittently turning the machine on and off to experiment with it and make sure her kid isn't saying anything important. The meditative matriarch is like, Wow, now that it's quiet, I realize that my husband fucking sucks, and I don't like living in New York. Me and Luis are out of here. She turns off the anti-noise machine, stuffs Luis into a snowsuit, and makes a beeline for the subway so that she can head to the Port Authority and get a couple of bus tickets to California. Good for her. The woman and her son end up sharing their subway car with a group of young men who are playing Donna Summer songs on their odd-looking boombox. The lady's understandably annoyed and decides to prank the guys by turning off the noise in the subway for a few minutes. Her action has the desired results, as the music lovers are momentarily confused and distraught by the situation, while the newly single mother smirks at them with a smug sense of self-satisfaction. But the woman's mirth is short-lived, because it seems that in addition to being a sound-absorbing device, the MacGuffin in question is also a Rube Goldberg device, and the silence it creates is about to set yet another chain of events into motion. See, one of the commuters on the subway happens to be J.D. Waldner, a houseless person who has just been released from Bellevue Hospital where he was being treated for an unnamed mental condition, one of the symptoms of which was that he heard voices in his head telling him to do weird shit. Only he could never hear the voices too clearly before on account of he lives in a very noisy city. But now that it was quiet, J.D. could very clearly hear the voices in his head telling him to pick up Luis's mom's purse, swing it over his head like a morning star, and knock the strange-looking fidget spinner out of her hand. Fair enough. 
In the chaos resulting from JD's rampage, another houseless person picks up the device and runs from the subway car with it. JD pursues her, and quiet chaos follows in their wake. The noiseless fracas swings by a movie theater. Hey, weren't Valkyrie and Bruce Banner going to see a movie today? I wonder what the odds are that they're in that very theater. Well, I don't have my calculator with me, but off the top of my head, I'd say 100%. Val and Bruce are enjoying a matinee presentation of Snow White, when suddenly the entire auditorium goes silent. Naturally, a riot instantly breaks out, and just as he had feared, Bruce Banner turns into the Hulk, Kool-Aid mans his way out of the theater, and starts smashing everything in sight. Hooray! I mean, I get that it's a bad thing for Bruce and for the city in general, but come on, it's the Hulk! Smashing is one of the two things he's best at! The sound absorber has now been going off long enough that Black Panther and Patsy have been able to track it down. T'Challa grabs a second sound absorber from the glove compartment, tosses it to Patsy, and leaps from the hover car. The plucky potentate makes a beeline for the Hulk and punches the green Goliath right in the face. Interesting move, Black Panther. Well, at first blush, it might seem like the King of Wakanda is attempting suicide by Hulk. There is a larger plan at work. A stupid plan, but a plan nonetheless. Although there is no sound due to the magic fidget spinner, before leaping from the hover car, the panther gave Hellcat a meaningful look. A look that Patsy correctly interpreted to mean, Hey Patsy, this second device I'm handing you is on and turned all the way up. What I'm going to do is go make as much noise as I can in the stupidest way imaginable so that both machines will be stressed to their limits to cancel it all out. Then, when the second device appears to be reaching its apogee, I want you to turn off this device so that the first device, which we are currently unable to locate, will overload and self-destruct. Got it? Good. Wow. That was one meaningful look. Fortunately, T'Challa's confidence in Patsy's eye-contact interpretation abilities seems to be well-founded. The plan goes off without a hitch. Hooray! Well. Almost without a hitch. Once the missing device explodes and the sound turns back on, the Hulk is understandably confused and upset. The bounding behemoth leaps off into the sunset, angrily quitting the defenders as he does so. See, that's the other thing that Hulk is the best at. Then Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman show up out of nowhere and tell all the rioters to go home. So they do. Fair enough. Hellcat is a little annoyed that members of the Fantastic Four swooped in at the last minute and hogged all the glory, but not so annoyed that she's going to stick around for the cleaning up process and tell them about it. Instead, she insists that Black Panther take her and Valkyrie out for a couple of drinks. Patsy gives Black Panther a look that says, There's a bar I know a couple of blocks from here where they make a really good Manhattan. My ex-boyfriend works there, so it might be a little bit awkward, and they only take cash, but I really think it's worth it. Also, make sure you tip well because I want to go back there. Unfortunately, Black Panther isn't as good at interpreting meaningful looks as Patsy is, so he probably just thinks she has to go to the bathroom. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going all right. How are you? I'm doing Pretty good for the most part. Had a little bit of 
work on my house done recently and found that, like most things that I've encountered, it appears to have been built by one of the first two pigs. So, you know. No bricks? Nah, man. Just straw and sticks. Wolf would come into this place, just blow it the fuck down. I have to trick him into jumping into a kettle. That's the part of homeownership I was not prepared for. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. How about you? You had to trick any wolves to jumping into kettles? Um, no. I'm good. You haven't had to, but have you tricked any wolves to jumping into kettles? No, I haven't even tried. I would be nervous to approach a wolf. Yeah, they're big and they're scary. And also they're endangered and I don't want to hurt a wolf. So what's in the kettle? (laughs) Just like some sticky stuff that it can't get out of? And then you can bring it like to a wolf shelter? Yeah, mostly in the kettle, I just keep some wolf chow and some pictures of sexy ladies from 1940s cartoons, because I've noticed that wolves seem to respond to that in the documentaries by Tex Avery that I've watched. I don't know who that is. He did the cartoons in the 40s, where the wolf would see a sexy lady and go, Auga! Oh. And then, like, its heart would go, ba-doom, ba-doom, ba-doom. Yeah. Huh. I guess I'm surprised I didn't know that man's name. Well, you should. Now I do. Hooray! Well, now that we've earned that educational grant money, uh, you want to talk about a comic book? I sure do. Okay. Corey, what did you think of this comic? Oh, man, for how densely packed the whole thing was, I quite enjoyed the wacky ride. I did, too. I know what you mean about really densely packed, not just with action, but with words as well. That was one of the things that I kind of wish was not the case, because I don't feel like it was necessary. I feel like the art in this issue was really beautiful, and I wish that the writing had trusted the art a little bit more to carry the story. But overall, it was a pretty fun story, and I enjoyed it. It had a lot of different twists and turns, and uh Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, touched on, oh, racism, big city stuff, insider trading, the Cold War, all kinds of things going on, really. Mm Mm-hmm. Dog alcoholism. Uh (laughs) That dog was so small, I can't believe he drank like half that bottle. Yeah, tiny little dog drinking wine straight from the bottle. That was one of my favorite scenes in the book. And it's another example of where I feel like I would not have enjoyed this book nearly as much if it were not for the quality of the artwork in that scene. And some just weird decisions that the art team made. We have, once again, Don Perlin is the penciler, and then the inks in this are done by Pablo Marcos, and they do a really good job with it. But in that one scene, the art team, I think, made the decision on their own to make the two characters in it look like Sydney Greenstreet and Peter Lorre from the Maltese Falcon, Mm. and then went the additional step, I believe, because there's nothing in the dialogue that would indicate that this should be the case, of making the Sydney Greenstreet character have this tiny little dog that he is feeding wine to straight from the wine bottle and then having the dog drink from a brandy snifter. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was just a weird, fun touch. And there were a few things like that throughout it. In the opening page, well, Valkyrie is having her 
two-page long internal monologue about her general ennui and not knowing where she fits in in the world. It's beautifully drawn. And also you see in the background of the first page where she shows up, this woman who is in the high-rise apartment. I think it's supposed to be a mop that she's holding, but she's definitely freaked out by seeing Aragorn and Val there. And at first I thought she was holding an umbrella. Do you know the lady I'm talking about? Yeah, I think I called her surprised cleaning lady. Yeah, I think that is what she's supposed to be. But when I first saw her, I like I said, I thought that was an umbrella. And I was like trying to make my own little story for her. Where I was like, oh, was she just about to marry Poppins out the window? And she's like, ah, traffic. I wasn't expecting air traffic at this hour. Or maybe it was like she snuck into her roommate's room and like stole the umbrella and then saw the horse and it's like (laughs) oh i'm so surprised gotta put this umbrella back in case this flying horse decides to narc on me Mm. yeah it was a fun opening scene and i appreciate the sentiment on the first page but then it goes on in my opinion about a page too long with val once again wondering what her place in the world is and going through so many thought bubbles to do that. I think my main criticism with this issue is way too many thought bubbles. And where it's a story where silence is a major component in the issue, I understand the impulse to put in more thought bubbles, but I think it really would have had a lot more impact and been creepier even if You just left them out, and I think the art is strong enough that you could have just had panels without words on them where the silence was supposed to be happening, rather than clutter it up with thought bubbles. Yeah, I don't feel like the art team or the readership was necessarily given much trust (laughs) in this one. Yeah, there is definitely a lot of show and tell and a lot of over-explaining of things, which is a shame because... There are a series of vignettes almost that surround this device, the sound absorber, which are like three separate Twilight Zone stories almost. Three or four, actually. And those, I think, were a lot of fun and make a fun through line for the issue. Yeah, did you have a one that stood out as your favorite kind of law of unintended consequences morals? Gosh, I mean, honestly, I think the Sydney Green Street Peter Lorre one in the embassy was probably my favorite, but I don't know. I I liked when the racist cabbie got his, I guess. I had a note to myself that was something to the effect of, so if it's really quiet, do you just not notice a fire? I I guess the implication is he slept deeply because it was so quiet and didn't notice the fire in his own bed that he had started. In a lot of ways, this whole issue reads as a weird cautionary tale against the inherent danger of noise-canceling headphones. Like, the world is just going to go off its fucking axis if we have access to that technology. Yeah, I think in that story it was supposed to, maybe he didn't hear the fire alarm, maybe it was just that he slept super soundly, but there is an escalation of consequence from not hearing things in this issue that seems kind of absurd in a lot of ways. I would think the heat from the flame would have woken him up. And if he was the guy who was going to kind of fall asleep with a cigarette on his tummy, you'd think he would have done that before now. Yep. The one, too, about the the guy 
on the subway who was hearing voices in his head. And then when the background noise was removed, it allowed his... I'm not an expert on schizophrenia or whatever he was suffering, but I was like, mm, yeah, that seems like a wee bit of a stretch. Yeah, I mean, the logical conclusion one could draw from that story is that if someone appears to be having a, like, psychotic break of some kind, just, uh, just yell at them. Or, like, bang a pot and pan near them. Have you tried this portable white noise machine? <laughs> This'll fix your mental illness. Just hang it around your neck. Yep, just, uh, you know, sane in a box is what I call it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that guy who was dressed incidentally like the ghost of future Mackenzie brothers from uh, Strange Brew. <laughs> There was a segment of the story that focused on the battle between that guy and the stereotypical 80s bag lady. There was just some odd stuff going on with that subplot in general, and I don't also understand how the noise-canceling device spread into the movie theater when I don't think she ever went into the movie theater with the device. That seemed like an odd stretch. The escalation, the like exponential escalation that took place with like, okay, I get it. That's why they called the issue Quiet Riot in Times Square. <laughs> Which is actually not what they called the issue. They called the issue the left hand of silence, which doesn't really make sense. I think it's supposed to be a acknowledgement of the fact that there was a book called My Left Hand of Darkness, mm -hmm. but it doesn't fit with the themes of this story at all. I get that, honestly, left hand of something is a catchy phrase, because when I was waiting tables and I was trying to remember which hand I was holding the diet soda in, I would always use the mnemonic device, My Left Hand of Diet. <laughs> yeah, I get mixed up often in all of these where the cover will have kind of a subtitle or something. And then I guess the main title is on the splash page. So the cover said quiet ride in Times Square. And then, the, yeah, the big title on the, the first page is left hand of silence. Yeah, we've discussed it before, but I'm not really sure where that comes from. Other than I think the cover is maybe done before the issue is completed. But I guess the cover art team thought that quiet ride in Times Square would sell more issues and maybe just uh rich buckler was a big fan of or i guess i think the letterer for the covers was usually gaspar saladino at this point but maybe one of them was just a big fan of quiet riot yeah i didn't check the chronology but this being august of 1980 they i think were a thing at that point or later maybe i can't remember so sort of the band actually formed in 76 i think 75, 76, somewhere in there. And Randy Rhodes, uh, who was later in Ozzy Osbourne's band, was their guitar player at that time. And they were kind of a vehicle for him. 1979, Ozzy saw them play and poached Randy Rhodes to be his guitar player. And the band broke up pretty much at that point. So they were broken up at the time this issue came out. And then 83 is when they reformed and put out Metal Health which is where the band that we think of as Quiet Riot really formed. But the weird thing is, if this is a reference to the band Quiet Riot, Saladino or Hannigan or whoever was into some fucking deep cuts because neither of their albums that had been recorded 
were released in the United States and still haven't been. They were released only in Japan and they were like known around the local scene in L.A. at this point, but not really outside of that. So I think it's probably parallel evolution or one of them was into some like deep cuts. Hmm. Well, it's definitely not as obvious as the Blue Oyster Cult stuff. <laughs> no, it's certainly a lot more subtle than that. Do you know the origin of the name Quiet Riot? I do not. One of them thought the name Quite Right would be a good name for a band, but said it in a weird voice and people misheard him. No shit. Yeah. Quite right. Quite right. <laughs> yeah, I should point out that originally Dick Van Dyke's character from Mary Poppins was in the band. Ah. <laughs> Quiet Riot, Mary. It's a jolly old day with you. Ah, well done. Yeah, so perhaps on account of the cover being done first, they got to the end of the issue and were like, oh shit, we need a riot. Well, let's just say people got nervous because they couldn't hear stuff in a suddenly very large area, whereas before it had been very small. Yeah. The end of the issue got very confusing to me. Black Panther's plan seems like pretty much nonsense for the most part. Like, one device seems capable of canceling as much noise as it wants to, but if they activate another device and then take that device away, then the first device will overload. Maybe just because it's getting too much noise all at once? I, I was really unclear about that. Also, that the Black Panther seems to think that the best way to make noise is to fight the Hulk. It would seem there are so many other ways to make more noise that are less horrifyingly dangerous mm -hmm. and manipulative, frankly. Like, that just seems like such a bad plan. I'm glad that it worked, but it really did seem like a huge escalation of people's reaction to it being quiet. I can understand that people, I think, would freak out if like, oh, laws of physics that I've known my entire life seem not to be applying what's going on, but that it immediately goes to rioting and looting seemed like a bit of a stretch. Yeah, definitely escalated way too fast. And I also had to think for a while about T'Challa's plan of just like blowing up one of the two devices. And all I could come up with was the one that they couldn't find was the one that had been churned up all the way. And that's what was causing the riot. So that was why they had to, I guess, destroy it. I mean, I think they just had to destroy it because they couldn't find it and they needed it to turn off. Right. But yeah, like I said, it didn't seem like there was an upper limit of how much sound it could absorb. I guess I don't understand the made up science behind these devices all that well. But fortunately, in the very last panel, somebody shows up who does. Reed Richards and Sue Storm from the Fantastic Four show up out of nowhere and are like, We'll tidy up this mess. Bye, everybody. They're there for one panel in their civilian uniforms. And I was like, what the fuck? That was hilarious, too. Like the inter-team, I don't know, competitiveness or slash bashing. Because I forget who it is, Patsy or somebody's like, oh, these assholes. <laughs> yeah. Also, it was so jarring for me to try to figure out. I know that Reed Richards can stretch. Seeing him out of uniform, seeing him stretching just wearing a regular brown suit was, for some reason, really disconcerting for me. And I just looked at the picture and was just like, what the fuck is going on with that guy? 
Yeah, yeah, it took me a minute too, and then it made me think of those Chuck Norris action jeans. Oh yeah, they used to sell in the like back of martial arts magazines that were jeans that had like the spandex thing sewn into the crotch so you could kick people <laughs> without tearing your jeans. Man, there are, have been times in my life when I could have definitely used a pair of those jeans. I blew out a lot of crotches of my pants doing high kicks for a while. You were remarkably flexible. It's true. Yeah, there was a period where like after hours at the bar, if I would have a few, I would just be like, I bet I could kick that door frame. And I could, but my pants couldn't. And so mm. like it happened more than once where I blew out the crotch of my <laughs> pants doing high <laughs> kicks when I was drunk. Ah, oh, that's just like that double edged sword of like, thank God we didn't have cell phones recording things back then. But also, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. You started to bring it up earlier. Did you have a favorite vignette slash cautionary tale about the importance of noise? Um, I don't know if I did. Like, I definitely have some misgivings about the, you know, white noise canceling out schizophrenia bit. Uh-huh. But the part about that one that I liked is the way that they described the mom's, like, smugness when she was like, I'll fix those music-liking people and <laughs> churned it up. I mean, on the one hand, I can empathize because when Lisa and I were in New York the most recent time, it did come up still on the subway. People listening to music really loudly on at this point, it was their iPhone or whatever, but like not with headphones in just having it blasting. And I was like, that is really thoughtless of you and really annoying. I wish you weren't doing that. But. On the other hand, I think I might have felt differently if they were playing Bad Girls by Donna Summers on their digital bathroom scale that they had brought onto the subway. Man, I know that's what the song was supposed to be, but the way that the lyric was illustrated made me think of, uh, we've both been watching that Joe Para Talks to You show, Mm -hmm. the one where he has that song about, I'd whistle with that. (laughs) (laughs) And the song starts with, Beep, beep, toot, toot, bad girls talking about. <laughs> I just heard it in his singing voice. <laughs> that is adorable. I wish I had read it that way. If you're listening at home, if you have the chance to check out Joe Para Talks to You, it is such a weird, funny, gentle, soothing show that is only 11 minutes long. It is very sweet and very, very weird, and you should check it out. I like the idea of that being the version of the song that they were listening to a lot. I was confused, though, because like I said, at first it looks like they are playing it on a kind of standard 1980 boombox that looks, frankly, pretty rad. And then when it's no longer working and they are looking at it with confusion, it really does just look like a bathroom scale. Maybe that's the side effect of the uh, sound-absorbing device. Oh, man. Just changes the appliance <laughs> to, to what you don't need it to be. Just at random? hmm Truly a devastating weapon. So the only vignette I think that we didn't really talk about at length, we talked about it a little bit, the woman cancels out the noise on the subway and then is smug about it, which is pretty fun. But that woman was like, ha, huh, gosh, it's been so noisy. I never had a chance to realize that my husband's a total fucking asshole. I'm going to leave him. 
yeah, silence is important, man. So I feel like there was some contradictory stuff in this issue on one hand, saying silence is very dangerous. But then on the other hand, it's like, oh, also, it'll make you realize that you were trapped in a relationship that's not healthy and should leave. Yeah. So, man, silence. A real mixed bag. You mentioned the insider trading aspect of this story, and I thought that was pretty interesting. I mean, first of all, the idea that this comic has that the 1980s were a time when the government was really cracking down on any corporate malfeasance was adorable and also disheartening to me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I mean, once again, we do see that the comic book is kind of taking the stance that the government's gone too far with their regulating, and they'll arrest people who it even seems like are doing anything wrong in a corporate setting. Just let corporations do what they want, which sucks. And you also see Kyle, as soon as he gets this insider information about this noise-canceling device that is a global threat because it's also a energy source and a weapon, his first move is to call his stockbroker and divest of, I guess a big part of his portfolio was tied up in like egg crate foam? Yep, big market for that. Yeah, which totally belies the thing that he had said like a few panels before, which was, I've never done anything even slightly unethical in terms of my trading practices. It was so jarring to me because he just finishes really freaking out when his lawyer suggests like, oh, just take a plea bargain. You know, it's the easiest thing. And he's like, well, I've never done anything wrong. And then he does this totally wrong thing. Therefore, his understanding of I've never done anything wrong is quite skewed. And I'm sure he's, he does shit like that all the time. And that's why he's in trouble. And he doesn't even understand it. I think it's a self-fulfilling thing. I think he's like, I think of myself as a good person. I'm a superhero. Therefore, if I'm doing it, then it can't be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm rich. Yeah, which unfortunately is a line of thinking you still see a lot of. Mm. I did like his phone, though, and I loved his apartment. Like, sitting down with your lawyer in your fucking conversation pit. Rad. Wearing your your smoking jacket and your PJs. (laughs) Oh, boy, with your modern art all around you. So very 80s. Yeah, that was cool. The other thing, too, that that whole bit touched on was his his lawyer said something that I thought was really, I don't know if it was prescient or if like that was already happening in the 80s with that first electric car that got killed. But basically saying big oil is just going to litigate the hell out of any threat to their business model. Mm-hmm. I was really surprised to see that in this this comic. I was, too. Yeah, I wasn't sure what the comic's take on the lawyer was. I think generally the lawyer is meant to be kind of a source of ridicule, even though he's one of the good guys, because when he says there'll be a lot of litigation, he seems very intrigued by that idea. He's like, hmm. So he maybe sees that as a business opportunity. But yeah, I was also surprised to see that stance taken, although I'm pretty sure the idea of the oil companies blocking the electric car was a popular conspiracy theory, if not at this time, then very soon afterwards. One of my earliest memories of my paternal grandfather, Harold Hubbard, was of him bringing that theory up whenever oil companies or the idea of an electric car was mentioned. 
That is one of the only political stances I remember him taking. It was that and just he would seemingly pick two names that were in the headlines and be like, huh, Tip O'Neill and William the Refrigerator Perry. Martin Jeff, one lies, the other swears to it. <laughs> That's funny. My absolute favorite of his exclamations, though, was, Jesus H. Christ and four hands round, Zelma. Zelma was my grandmother, which explains that part of the exclamation, but I'm not sure why Jesus was playing cards or what the H stood for, unless maybe it was Harold? I did also like that the lawyer appeared to be singing when they were supposed to make noise. Oh my god, that whole like couple panels of when T'Challa's like, please make as much noise as you can, <laughs> and like Kyle just picks up a vase and starts swinging it around over his head, and the <laughs> lawyer is like, had his hand on his chest and is making some operatic uh, overture, probably. I like the idea that, yeah, the lawyer's just like, oh, this is my big chance. I can finally sing at the top of my lungs. What freedom. But it's like I was saying before, when you see that panel, there aren't any thought bubbles or anything happening. And it conveys the silence so much better that way than it does in later panels when it's silent. And as a result of that, the whole panel is cluttered with thought bubbles. I've said the art is beautiful in this, and it is. But there's an oddly, like, static feel to a lot of the artwork. It doesn't seem as dynamic or as fluid as you sometimes see in these. And it's done in a way that I think maybe that's intentional. Because I feel like it would work really well if there weren't those thought bubbles. And would give it almost like a strobe effect type feel. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. To get back to the segment about the racist cabbie for just a second, do you know who Chris Rogan is? No, I was hoping you could tell me. I have no idea. I'm assuming maybe it's Joel Rogan's dad? <laughs> but all we know about this guy for sure is that at least one person working on this comic book thinks that he is a jerk and a dumb motherfucker. <laughs> He might have also been the honky, but we don't see the name of, <laughs> of who the honky is. That's true. That's one of the many mysteries this comic sets up. Yep. I'm, I'm assuming this issue is the beginning of the Chris Rogan saga. But yeah, in the cabbie's apartment building, as you said, the first piece of graffiti that we see, and this is all done in just like, I don't know, Comic Sans lettering pretty much, is we don't see who it is, but somebody is a honky. Then in the guy's apartment, we see Chris Rogan is a jerk. And then in the panel under that, on a different wall is written, Chris Rogan is a dumb mother. And I'm assuming that's going to be dumb motherfucker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that made me very curious about who is Chris Rogan and what is his relationship with the creative team. <laughs> I would assume an acrimonious one in some way, although maybe that is just a fun in-joke for Chris. Uh, yeah, I tried to look it up, and my meager Google searching could uncover nothing other than, do you mean Joe Rogan? And it's like, no, I don't mean Joe Rogan. Did I ask whose career peaked with news radio? No. Did you Google translate any of the Spanish dialogue? No, I was hoping you would be able to uh, help me out with that. It's mostly accurate as far as I can tell, although there is one phrase that's like, you know how... A lot of times Americans will be like, if I just put an O on the end of an English word, then it's a Spanish word. Yeah. So 
and and also the other bit of dialogue it's done in the same kind of font as the spanish that he's hearing that sets him off on his tirade about go back to your country mm-hmm. uh is the is the word twee <laughs> <laughs> so it's somebody who we we assume i guess is a lady saying hey raul twee ks la materol contigo and materol is not a spanish word as far as i know okay but it sounds like matter like hey what's the matter with you ah and then uh donde estabas anoche where were you last night interesting but uh yeah i was was like oh man they were doing so good and then they're just like matter how do you say matter in spanish matter all (laughs) that's spanish right yeah probably i mean they really nailed raul there that guy is so twee it's like he walked out of a wes anderson film fucking raul maybe that's the guy that uh the lady is leaving oh she's leaving him because he's too twee I don't I don't know that that adjective. Um it's kind of like performatively whimsical in sort of a Wes Anderson-y way is how I think of it. That's twee. Yeah, I think. Ah. Okay. Yeah, no, I don't think that's the right adjective for Raul at all. <laughs> I don't know why she called him twee. But we don't know the guy. Maybe that's what's the most frustrating about him. Hmm. He's a real enigma. Yeah. He doesn't, nobody knows where he was last night, but he's so precious. <laughs> exactly. So when Steve comes out from the other room and is just like, Bruce, stop whining and go see a movie. Everything will be fine. Do you think he really believes that shit? Or does he want Bruce to turn into the Hulk? Or... Does he just want them to get out of the apartment so he can take a fucking nap or watch some flame ghosts do weird shit? Oh, man, all of the above. Like, he he needs the Hulk back because he likes bossing him around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he can't, you know, call Bruce something like a green-skinned behemoth and get away with it. <laughs> right, if nothing else, it's inaccurate. Mm-hmm. So I think, he, yeah, he misses having the Hulk to boss around. And, yeah, I think he, he probably wants to enjoy some privacy and flame ghost action. Whenever he is not wearing the cape with his outfit, it really highlights the fact that he is just wearing his pajamas. Yeah, yeah, he's he's probably got, other than the gloves, I'm going to say, one of the more comfortable costumes. Yeah, it's a good look. But as I said, when the cape is gone, I kind of miss it. Not as much as I do. The mandrel looks so much different when he's not wearing his Doctor Strange cosplay outfit. And I, I don't like it. I don't want him going around in that little, like, dish towel wrapped around his waist. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what made it so much more disturbing seeing him not wearing human clothes that he was like an ape man with all the uncomfortable... uh, Racist and sexist implications of his character. Yeah, it seems even more somehow pronounced and noticeable because he's more of a, like, an obvious, like, human ape mashup the way this is drawn well i think for one thing having him almost but not quite nude brings up the sexual implications of both his power set and his origin both of which are super problematic for a number of reasons it's a disturbing few panels that he appears in i was also confused because like his fancy central american opulent villa Apparently has, like, a hot tub that has lily pads in it or something. 
I think it's supposed to look like really opulent, but the fact that it had lily pads and it made it seem more like he just had a overgrown pond that he was crashing in. And his whole presence in the few panels, it seems so unnecessary in this comic book. Like, we really didn't need that. It was shoehorning in another thing into an already pretty jam-packed issue. Yeah, I really, I felt like this particular issue, for whatever reason, was just running like, oh shit, what if somebody picks this up on the newsstand and they haven't read the last 10 issues? I better catch them all up. Like, it kind of had that feel to it. Yeah, it, it definitely did. It was referencing things from the past that it didn't need to, and that is a tendency in comic books that was definitely something that Jim Shooter, who was the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics, that was one of his big things that he was always pushing, was every issue could be somebody's first issue. Mm -hmm. I was also, I gotta say, a little bit struck by the deaths that happened in this issue. I know minor characters dying is something that happens a fair amount, but I didn't think it happened at this era as much as it did. And we get a couple of them. We get like three, I think, people die in this issue. You have both the Sydney Greenstreet and the Peter Lorre character. And then you also have the racist cabbie burned to death on panel. I kind of wasn't prepared for that. Yeah, totally. I just felt so bad for that bus driver. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Like, somebody jumps out in front of you, you honk, you slam on the brakes, it doesn't make any sound, yep. the guy doesn't notice you, and you kill him. Oof. Yeah, that's going to be something he's going to carry with him his whole life. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to start going around and burning all the noise-canceling headphones I can find. <laughs> They're too dangerous, Corey! Too dangerous! Have you used them? No. They're not good enough. Oh. I tell you about that flight I was on where there was a little kid sitting in the seat across the aisle from me who shouted pretty much for the entire like six hours of the flight, I want daddy's headphones. <laughs> no. Well, okay. I guess he had noise canceling headphones, but so did I. And I could still hear that kid. And I was just like, damn it, dad. <laughs> Give the kid your stupid headphones. Don't pretend you can't hear her because I can hear her. Oh, man. That was very frustrating. Corey. Do you think that dad was Chris Rogan? Oh, probably. <laughs> what a jerk. I hate that guy. Well, was there anything else you wanted to bring up before we get into the minutiae? No, I think whatever is left will come up there. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you want to start off with? Hmm. Why don't we just cut to the chase and talk about best and worst? Okay, Corey, who did you have as your worst offender, and who did you have as the best defender? Let's start with worst. So, as much as I love him, Black Panther was in the running. Yep. I don't feel like he did a good job, and he put a lot of people... Maybe even a whole city at risk with his <laughs> let's make noise by fighting with the Hulk. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. Such a bad idea. I had almost everybody in contention for worst defender. I feel like they all did a very bad job in some way. I mean, Black Panther, yes, he did those things. He also decided to trust Kyle with a secret. That's a terrible plan. And as he was doing that, Patsy was there basically saying, yeah, 
yeah, you can tell Kyle. He's a pretty trustworthy guy, good at keeping secrets. So that right there, I think, puts Patsy in the running. Oh, shit. I overlooked that somehow. I think I like her so much, I just, I didn't even, I was just like, eh, I'll just gloss over that. You have Kyle doing his insider training. You had Steve doing his, no, go out, go out on the town, Bruce. It'll be fine. You don't have to worry about turning into the Hulk. Which, yeah, yeah, he, he does actually, Steve. You have Valkyrie being a bad Hulk sitter and also being like, hey, the Hulk, let's go see a movie. And, and the Hulk's like, yeah, you know, if the movie's too intense, then uh, I, I might get stressed out about it. And she's like, well, we'll go see uh, an old Disney movie. I'm sorry, Val, those old Disney movies are scary as fuck. I'm not entirely convinced that the Hulk turned into the Hulk because of the rioting, because we see it is the scene in which Snow White is about to bite the poison apple. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's before that happens, he's saying, I've never felt so relaxed. Why, I'm okay with talking in theaters, I'm so relaxed. And so you do have Val, who is a cinephile, talking in the movie theater, too. So that's not a great job. You get the Hulk going on his rampage. Really, I think everybody was in play. But ultimately, I gave the nod to Steve for his selfishness. But it was kind of a dealer's choice situation. Yeah, I, I feel like Kyle's um, I don't know, moral license or whatever, that just he can do no wrong. Like that kind of willful ignorance about, I've committed no crimes. Hold on, let me pick up the phone and do this insider trading. Put him in the, in the top yeah. for me, even more so than Black Panther. I think that's a solid choice, yeah. Conversely, who did you have as the best defender? Well, despite being an apologist for Kyle, <laughs> I went with Patsy. I thought, you know, her, she maintained a great attitude. She ultimately saved the day by getting the sound absorber widget blown up in the subway. And then um, was just like, at the end, you know, ah, fuck it. Let's just go get drunk. Yeah, I actually had Patsy for pretty much the same reasons. I had Patsy picking up intuitively on Black Panther's terrible, nonsensical plan. That is very, very impressive. And uh, then afterwards, she got her and Val free drinks. So mm -hmm. she was my choice for the best. My backup was Valkyrie for making the best of a bad situation and really looking on the bright side in the early few panels of the book where she's flying around and is like, man, sucks that I can't find this device, but uh, nice day for it. Watching the sunrise. Mm -hmm. That's a nice time. Can you imagine if you like it, uh, putting aside my fear of both birds and horses like <laughs> when you go for a walk you know you're like one of those thinking walks where you got shit to sort out like that's really pleasant sometimes just being alone and out in the woods or out in nature but if you had a flying horse you're just like man i just gotta go think about some things i'm gonna fly around the city skyline and watch the sunrise that would be pretty pretty cool there is a kind of different solitude being in a city when almost nobody is awake that is pretty fun. And yeah, doing that on a flying horse. I am in a similar camp with you where I am afraid of both birds and horses. But maybe it's like a gin and tonic thing. I don't like the way gin tastes. I don't like the way tonic water tastes. You put them together, not bad. I'm going to start calling them Pegasuses. I like that. Is that a gin and tonic? No, man, it's Pegasus. Every issue of a Defenders comic has one character who has to act 
out of character in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they've just gotta be a sucka. In this issue, who was your sucka? Well, it's maybe a little bit of a stretch, but I had Steve because he let his desire to be alone with his flame ghost override his normal tendency to pontificate about how great he is, in this case responding to Banner's jibe about is that a medical or a mystical advice, you know, where Steve tells him to go relax. And uh, that's the I would normally think Steve would be like, well, yes, having, you know, both a doctorate and being the world's foremost mystical expert, blah, blah, blah. He just didn't take the bait. Well, I, I think he may not have had the chance to because Valkyrie kind of cuts him off and does that for him. Because uh, immediately after Banner says that, Val says, Dr. Strange is qualified to give both and you should listen instead of being sarcastic. But you're right, I think it is out of character for Steve to let his sloth get in the way of his pretension. And to let a woman speak for him. <laughs> Good point. I think that is a very solid choice. I decided to go with Black Panther. I don't know, I, I don't see him generally being so reckless as to, you know what, I'm just going to fight the Hulk. We saw him in the previous issue, he avoided a direct confrontation with Namor uh, out of a sense of pragmatism. So him just being like, yeah, you know what, I'll go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Hulk for no goddamn reason, just seemed like a berserk move to me. And I don't know, that's not how I think of the Black Panther behaving. Yeah, no, he was very out of character in this issue, I agree with that. What was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you like, much like you would like a pie, if it were not made out of steel? Oh, I'll say it and you guess it, who I'm being. Okay. The tension you are undergoing is almost stifling to my ectoplasmic senses. You might end up forcing a change if you don't relax. <laughs> oh, Steve. Well done, Corey. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that as well. That is a wonderful piece of... I don't know, self-serving nonsense. Oh, I don't know. I, I think there's a, there's a nugget of wisdom buried in there. <laughs> My ectoplasmic senses. <laughs> yeah, that, I just, I can't hear that word without thinking of Slimer from Ghostbusters. Yeah, I specifically can't think of it without thinking of ecto-cooler. Mm. I remember being in high school and uh, me and my friend came up with a plan that we were wanted to walk around the town and, uh, and get drunk. <laughs> So we had a bottle of Midori and oh. a thing of ecto-cooler, oh. and we mixed them oh, together, God. and it was so gross, and also a very, very low alcohol percentage. But our plan was, if anybody asked what we were drinking, we would just say ecto-cooler. And the one time somebody did, we both looked at each other, looked at them, said ecto-cooler in unison and then looked down and it could not have been more obvious that we were lying oh my god but they didn't say anything because they didn't give a shit because that was the real point nobody gave a shit mm -mm. that is terrible it really really was that beverage sounds so bad it was so sweet Ugh. it's amazing that we didn't just immediately get diabetes Mm -hmm. Like, I think we would have gotten that before we got actually drunk. Yeah, 
Midori is not a full strength thing, right? It's like 12% or something? Something like that. I don't remember exactly. Definitely, it's a liqueur, not a liquor. So, I don't know. We were kids. We were dumb. Nothing should be that green. That's true. My pie not made out of steel came from Kyle's lawyer when he said, Oh, come now, my boy. I know you didn't do anything wrong. But it's the climate of the day. One whiff of possible financial chicanery, and they feel obligated to come down on you. I just would love it if we lived in a world where that was true. (laughs) Yeah, I would just love it if that had been true at any point. If white-collar crimes were actually prosecuted. So, I I enjoyed those words. I also very much enjoyed the little bit after the device is destroyed. The echo of the absorber's paroxysm of destruction fade. Like, oh, paroxysm? That's a fun word. Had to look it up. That means like an emotional explosion. That is a good segue to sound effects. It is indeed. What were your favorite sound effects, Corey? The echo of yeek. So I was torn. I mean, it is tough to not go with yeek. That is really, really well done. It is 10 Ys, 12 Es, and a K that kind of zigzag around the panel. That was really, really well done. There were a few different things that were done with the sound effects that were visually interesting. You also had the ambulance making a wee 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 like noise that zigzagged around the panel, and I thought that was really good. There is a new letterer for this issue, a Michael Higgins, and I'm wondering if at some point there was almost a, like, that's why there was so much thought bubbles in this issue, was like, oh, let's put the new guy through his paces. Mm. But I think the, the sound effects were really, really well done in this issue, where the idea of noise was so important. I think I'm probably giving the edge to Yeek, but it is hard for me not to go with my favorite being Donna Summer's Bad Girls, especially now that you give me the idea that it is Joe Perra singing it. Yep, that was actually at the top of my list, too. I wrote it right down. <laughs> beep, beep, toot, toot, bad girls talking about. That's it. Yeah, I agree. Went on the subway, saw a bad girl. Beep, beep, toot, toot. I can whistle with that. <laughs> <laughs> Corey, I do have a question for you. Mm. Behold or be gone? Today's Behold or Be Gone is inspired by a panel in which Patsy is swinging by a department store on her little uh, grappling hook claws. That department store appears to be named Karate. How did I not see that? It's on page 14. Oh, maybe that's like a karate studio. I thought that, but I think it really is more a department store. And so, today's Behold or Be Gone is a fancy new store opens in downtown Portland called Karate. Do you want to shop there? I'm not a big shopper, but I definitely want to go see what they have. What do you think they would sell? Hmm... I don't think it would be actual, like, martial arts-related stuff. I think it would be more like, I don't know. Karate-inspired fragrances? Oh, 
that hadn't occurred to me but yeah so there probably definitely is a fragrance counter and then there's like a bunch of like you know retro chic 80s stuff with you know shoulder pads and rayon yeah and you know zebra print and feathers see i'm worried given its location given where we live if it's downtown portland seems like it might be the kind of store that raul would shop at if you know what i mean <laughs> a little bit twee a little twee yeah i feel like uh hipster karate inspired things is not the sort of thing i would really gravitate towards you know but the idea of hipster karate i find kind of unsettling First of all, they would definitely be calling it karate. You'd get like the shitty Steven Seagal ponytail would be mm-hmm. moved up a few inches on the head and turned into the little bun. Mm-hmm. You got artisanal handcrafted bricks for breaking. You get some guy trying to make karate jazz and saying shit like, oh, it's about the bricks that you're not breaking. I think I want nothing to do with this store, Corey. I am giving it a firm be gone i just want to poke my head in and see what this is all about so i'm i gotta pick one or the other am i gonna shop there it's a be gone am i gonna check it out it's a behold uh, yeah i am kind of curious about this place probably a behold and go i don't know if that's waffling too much but a quick b and b behold and be gone <laughs> yeah yeah b and b all right fuck it double b between us, that's going to be four Bs, because I'm with you on this. <laughs> All right. Curious, but but uh, not financially committed. Exactly, exactly. Story of my life. <laughs> All right. Quad Bs for this category. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most noteworthy? Kyle's PJs. We, we talked about his whole outfit for his lawyer chat. Mm-hmm. Smoking jacket. Ooh, it is a sweet smoking jacket. Purple velvet with, like, the satin lapels. Mm-hmm. And then an orange ascot. Yeah, very dapper. And he may, in fact, shop at the same place as the guy at the Russian consulate who appeared to have a purple velveteen? Some sort of a purple suit mm-hmm. to go with his, his white uh, shih tzu or whatever small dog that was. Yeah, I think that is a Shetland luck dragon. What? From the never-ending story. Oh my god. It just looks like a tiny version of a luck dragon. It is a it is a cute dog. It doesn't come up in the issue, but I'm pretty sure the dog is named Max. Max. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I liked both of those outfits. I also liked Reed Richards um unstable molecules brown suit that he is wearing. And Sue Storm's little summer outfit that I hate that her one line in this issue is, if we hurry, we can still get to the white sale at Macy's. That just seems like such a throwback to the Silver Age when she was written by Stan Lee and all of her dialogue was like, here's what girls like, shopping. Mm -hmm. But in terms of fashion, I did really like Reed Richards' brown suit that stretches. It just seemed like such a weird choice. Yep. Action slacks. Oh, man. I don't covet many super abilities, and I don't think I do want Reed Richards' stretchiness, but imagine the high kicks that guy could do. Oh, wow. What was your favorite panel? I had two choices that were in contention. One, we already talked about, I called it Noisemakers, 
and it's the one with the attorney singing and Kyle shaking a vase and Patsy, I think, just screaming. <laughs> yep. It looks like Kyle is going to try to beam Patsy over the head with that vase. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's a tiny little panel, but there's just so much, you know, it's it's like you said, there's just not the need for all, all these words mm-hmm. with, when the art's that good. It really illustrates what is going on very well. Yeah, I loved that panel, too. That was in contention for me as well. I also really loved, I mean, we've talked about it, but on page 10, drinking doggo, <laughs> the Sydney Green Street character holding the wine bottle up to his dog's mouth, apropos of absolutely nothing else that is happening in that interaction, I thought was just delightful. I also loved the way they drew the darkness in the movie theater. Uh, it's on page 26. It's just really nicely drawn. It's all done in blue and black ink. And it's Val and Bruce talking in the darkened theater and somebody reprimanding them. And it's just really nicely drawn. Yeah, that is a good one. I think my favorite one is actually a a couple pages after that. I think maybe page 28 and it's the sewer explosion. The yeek? Yeah. And similarly to the theater one, the the color palette is, is limited. And it's all black and red and yellow on a white background, which just indicates that this is a huge amount of energy being released by this explosion that's kind of emanating out through this sewer grate. Well, you know, the formerly rioting crowd is, is cowering in fear, you know? Yeah, that is really, really nicely done. It's an image that wouldn't look out of place on the cover of like a disaster movie, like video box cover. I can totally see that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really, really lovely art in this. I, I love the opening image of Val watching the sunset is really good. But I think if I am choosing my favorite, it is probably going to be Drinkin' Doggo. All right, we got one Drinkin' Dog and one Exploding Sewer. Mm-hmm. What a day. <laughs> good times. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules, but in this issue... What is the Hulk's rules? That too much stress is fucking bad for you and you just need to relax. Mm. I mean, I know Strange and and Val were really the ones trying to get Banner to see the light on this. But uh, I, I gotta say, that's some of the better advice that we've seen in the pages of this book. I mean, sort of. Didn't really end up turning out so good. But I agree. Too much stress is no good. You gotta chill out. It wasn't the chilling out that caused things to go sideways. It was his attempt to go out to chill out, which was not his initially preferred manner. And what he was nervous about, if he did go out, did end up coming to fruition. So it's a two-part Hulk's rules. (laughs) One, it's a trust your gut and don't let people boss you around into doing things you're not comfortable with. And find your own way to relax Mm. and go do that. How's that? I think that's a really good rule for the Hulk. I had the Hulk learning a more straightforward rule than I sometimes have in these. I had the Hulk learning the rule that Chris Rogan is a dumb motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Whoever whoever you are, Chris Rogan. (laughs) He just saw that on the wall and was just like, yeah, man, somebody takes the time to write that shit in clearly legible font on his own apartment wall twice. Yeah, you know what? Fuck that guy. Probably something to it. Yeah. And that's the Hulk's rules. Nice. 
Well, Corey, just one more thing we've got to go over, and that is me asking you, in the year of our Lord, 1980, and the month of our Lord, August, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Yeah, well, Wong was attempting to settle something with Steve. See, they had had a bit of a disagreement, and this took place in Scotland, where they had gone to kind of get away from things and take a wee break and uh, tour some of the distilleries in the area. Mm. And they got good and drunk. And having stumbled back to the place that they were staying, they were playing cards. And in place of money, they were betting. You remember the little ceramic animal figurines that came in Celestial Seasonings tea? I do not. Well, that was a, a thing that they had in the 80s where, like, you get a box of this tea and you'd get, like, a little ceramic, you know, pig or cow or some bear, some cute little animal. Did they have the weird jazz band that's on the cover of Lemon Zinger tea? Oh, I wish. <laughs> where no, that stone no, raccoon is playing a lemon like a bongo drum? No, no, I wish. Oh. I, I had a bunch of these little ceramic guys when I was a kid, so they did exist. Okay. Anyway, Wong's favorite was this pig. and. Steve got mad that he had a losing hand and grabbed the pig and took off and Wong was chasing him around the table and then Steve just up and popped it in his mouth and swallowed it. What? You're not getting it now. And then he passed out and fell down. And Wong was really upset by this. And he just stayed up all night waiting. And Steve woke up and he's like, Steve, you gotta puke that pig up, man. I want my pig back. And Steve's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Why does my head hurt so much? And he, he had no recollection. He didn't believe that he had swallowed the ceramic pig. So Wong packed him up into a taxi and they went off to the Aberdeen Royal Infirmary where, you know, Wong, as we always talk about, has friends in, in many different disciplines and lots of influence and all this stuff from these, these strong relationships that he's established with people in different fields. In this case, it was with the folks in the uh, magnetic resonance imaging department of the royal infirmary in scotland and aberdeen Mm. where they were staying and so it was on the 28th day of august 1980 the very first mri image was of steve strange's stomach showing that little ceramic pig in there (laughs) and uh, he was very embarrassed and he didn't remember doing this and and wong eventually got the pig back that's another story but um yeah it was the first instance of an mri scanner being used wow Well, that was one thing that Wong was doing in August of 1980. Another activity he was involved in was fostering a rescue dog. Specifically, the dog that was orphaned in this issue. Max, the wine-drinking dog. (laughs) Poor critter. That poor little drunk dog. Wong decided to take him into his home and rehabilitate him until uh, Max could find a forever home. And he really ended up bonding with that drunk little puppy. They would hang out and they were playing and he was like, Oh, Max, you're so silly. Come here, you silly Max. I'm going to get you, silly Max. And Steve overheard that. Or rather, he misoverheard it. Like a lot of residents of New York at the time, His hearing wasn't doing so good after the sound explosion that happened after the uh, destruction of the absorbing device. And so he didn't hear all of what was happening, but he heard Wong saying, I'm gonna get, and then something that sounded like 
Cinemax. <laughs> and Steve was like, oh no, if Wong is going to get Cinemax, he might lock me out of it. Cinemax went for sale on August 1st of 1980, and uh, Steve, hoping to beat Wong out to it and watch some late-night softcore films, <laughs> purchased for the Sanctum Sanctimonious Cinemax. And eventually, Silly Max did find a forever home. But that's a tale for another time. Nice. And those were the Wong doings that Wong was doing in August of 1980. What a month. What a year. Indeed. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lovely time chatting with you about this comic book. Likewise. Thanks. And we'll be back next week with a new Teen Titans tale. Fingers crossed the conclusion of the Brother Blood story. Although... Who can fucking say for sure at this point? I'll believe it when I read it. Yeah. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at ttwasteland at gmail.com or via our post office box at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We can also be reached all up in many aspects of the internets on uh, social media or in other ways. Just, uh, you know, do a little uh, poking around. See what the interwebs have to offer you. Just go to httpwww.google.com and type in <laughs> Tighten Up the Defense. And if you spell Titan T-I-T-A-N, well, we'll show up in there somewhere. And uh, yeah, poke around. We're on like the... Twitter, the Tumblr, uh, Instagram. Somebody made us a GeoCities site recently, which is a delight. Uh, I think it's actually NeoCities, but you can check that out as well. Podomatic. We, we got our fingers in a lot of cyber pies. So just, uh, just poke around and, you know, see what the fisherman brings in that day. More mixed metaphors than usual, even. That's, that's too many. Sorry. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's another place you can look. And that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there, setting up a conversation pit. Maybe having our lawyer over, see if we've done any financial malfeasance, and if maybe we could. If you would like to donate to the show monetarily so that we don't need to do any more financial malfeasance, then uh, a great way to do that is by checking us out on patreon.com slash TT Wasteland. If you do and you decide to donate, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material, including the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the monthly Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There's also just a bunch of other stuff up there. Little videos, uh, a few bonus episodes Corey and I have recorded. You know, stuff. So, if you want access to all that stuff, you can make a donation, and then you can check it all out. But more importantly, from my perspective at least, it's a really nice way for you to let us know that you like the work that we're doing and would like us to continue doing it. I'd like to once again thank people. I've gotten uh, a lot of really good feedback about the Haunted Disco Barn episode that we put out a few weeks ago. Thanks. I, I really appreciate that. And if you haven't checked that out, you know, if, if maybe you're like, oh, this isn't Titans or Defenders, I'm going to skip it. I think you should check it out. I think it came out pretty good. 
So, you know, that that's a thing you can do too. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, great way to do that is to spread the word in any way you can. Just, you know, start saying nice things about us on the internet or over a megaphone or... Make a sign. Make a sign. Yeah, make a protest sign. Send a telegram to somebody. Do they still do telegrams? Probably. Get one of those Skywriter planes or one of those planes that has a little uh, little flappy bit behind it, you know, like a banner. That's what they're, the flappy bits are called. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, write to your congressman. Try to pass some kind of a tighten up the defense resolution. You know what? Actually, they're probably busy or maybe should be. So maybe don't bother them with it. But uh, make a make an informal resolution to yourself to say nice things about us. Or just, you know, you could also just leave us a review on a place where reviews can be left. What do you think people should say in a review, Corey? I like this podcast. Five stars. Direct to the point. I like it. Yeah. So, you know, you can do those things. Or you can just, you know, sit back on your duff and enjoy the fruits of our labor. Worry-free. That's fine, too. Yep. So, have a nice time. And remember, toot toot, hey, beep beep, I can whistle with that. Bad girls. You said what I was going to say, so that's cool. Sorry. It's all right. I can whistle with that. Beep beep. (laughs) You know it. Bye, guys. Bye. And they knew it. Oh man, there's a hummingbird outside. That's really cool. Sorry, I'll, I'll edit that out. But um, <laughs> no. it's cool that there's a hummingbird outside. Don't, don't, don't leave that gold on the floor. I beg your pardon, young man. But exactly what did you say you were going to do with Miss Andrews' sockets? Dance her out of them, Mr. Greenstreet. See, Sydney, doesn't that constitute mayhem? Definitely, Peter. Besides, it would be very gruesome. Horrible sight. Now look, gentlemen, it's only a figure of speech. You you know, like you'll say, you'll tear a guy limb from limb. You wouldn't really tear a guy limb from limb. (laughs) Huh? Wouldn't we?